Good morning, my friends. You know, if you summarize the, uh, the passage today, you could just say, well, there were ten people that received a blessing. One said thank you. The others didn't. Mimic the last one. Let's say a prayer and go home. But you know I'm not going to do that. There's always more. God puts things in Scripture and allows them to be passed down through time. The things that he, he doesn't have in here, He doesn't have in here for a reason. The things that are here are here for a reason. So let's get a greater context. Let's just go back to chapter 15 briefly as we look at this context. Uh, in the, what we see in this, there's three parables given in, three 15, in chapter 15. One is about a lost sheep. One out of ninety, one out of a hundred, ninety-nine are left. And Jesus is saying, "I go after the lost. I came to seek and to save the lost." That's why Jesus came. Uh, the the sad thing is, is the ninety-nine represent those who don't think they're lost, who don't think they have any needs, and so they're not saved. The one that's lost knows he's lost. There are sheep that, in this, certainly in this parable the sheep knows it's lost there are people today that that are lost they don't they may know that they're lost in fact I would say everyone who's I said not everyone the good portion of people who are lost they're not believers in Christ they know they're lost they may not see Jesus as the one who finds them but they know they're lost they know that they're sinners they know they could do better but in this Jesus is saying I came to seek and seek and to save the one who is lost and you've got this parable of a sheep one lost sheep and then this parable of a of one lost coin. And Jesus reiterates, I came to seek and save the lost. The nine coins that weren't lost, they're good. The 99 sheep that are fine, they're found, that's good. But I came to seek and save the lost. In chapter 15, however, those 99 represent people who just don't think they're saved. Those nine coins that weren't lost represent people who don't think that they're, that they're lost, I should say. People that don't care. We live in a society where people don't care. They don't go around worrying about salvation, and we, you and I as saved people, as believers in Christ, we wonder, why don't you care? How, why aren't you afraid? Have you never thought for a moment about hell, the ramifications of going to hell? I mean, I, I got, how many of you are suffering from post-nasal drip this week with the change of the weather? You wake up at wee hours and uh, got to stiff some spray or take a pill or something. It's miserable. I mean, if God just wanted hell to be post-nasal drip, that would be terrible. I hate that. Uh, and, and you get up and you just sneeze. and ugh, ugh. Some of you get stopped up. I get just the, Lord, send the rapture, please. <laughs> so if hell were just that bad, that would be horrible. I don't understand why people don't think more in terms of hell. And then we get the, the third one, which is the more popular, um, well-known parable of the prodigal son, where one son leaves the home, takes his inheritance, spends it all frivolously, comes back, and, and as he's asking for forgiveness, his dad forgives him. Indicative of the lost, realizing that they're lost, coming back for repentance. And before they can even get out their repentance spiel, God says, forgive him. Come on in, let me put the great robe on you, a ring on your finger, Shoes on your feet. Let me honor you as the found. You were lost. You were dead. And now you're alive. Isn't that great? And of course, there's the other brother that he's representative of the 99 sheep that 
that were left behind. What's the deal? You give him all of this. Look at me. Look at what I've done for you, Dad. I've been so good. You don't give me a party with my friends. One goat to have, a, have some chicken fried steak. Something with the guys one night. No. Doesn't know he's a sinner. Perhaps worse than his brother who left. And so we have a world today filled with people who don't think they're lost. They think they're pretty good people. They compare themselves with someone that they know is worse than them. And they think, well, he's going to hell. She's going to hell. But I'm better than them. I won't go to hell. Folks, we are all, all, every one of us, without a single exception, since the days of Adam and Eve, that is all of humanity, we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. We are all lost Like sheep, Jesus says, who have gone astray, that's us, all of us. There is not a single one of us who does good. No, not one, according to Romans 3. You may think you mean well, but even in your meaning well, in our well-meaningness, we are still wretchedly sinful. Only God can save, and by His grace, He saves through faith In Jesus Christ alone. Amen? I didn't make that up. That's just straight from the New Testament. I believe it. I preach that. And this one boy who doesn't rebel as his brother did, as I said, is indicative of the Pharisees, those who think that they're great and wonderfully religious. They're lost too. So it doesn't matter how many Bible verses you memorized. It doesn't matter if you were baptized when you were an infant or when you were 13 years old. It doesn't matter if you were confirmed. It doesn't matter if you give 10% or 20% or 80% of your income. Those things don't make a person saved. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone saves. It means you know you're lost. You can't do anything about it except receive Jesus. In chapter 16, we read about this unrighteous steward, this man who who squandered his boss's money, but who took the time when he knew he was caught to make friends with the world. And Jesus says, you do the same thing, except do it spiritually. Use unrighteous wealth, that is the wealth of the world, to make friends. That is to bring people to know Christ. Use your money, invest it in people. Not horses and dogs like people do today. People spend more money on their dogs than they give to the church of Jesus Christ. I hope that convicts many of you. Three or four dogs. You spend more time taking the dogs out than you do reading God's Word. Spend more time bending over like a fool picking up their you-know-what, putting it in a bag, than you would saying a prayer to God. Where are your priorities? Where are our priorities This is man, Jesus is saying, look, use your God-given resources to further the kingdom of God so that when you enter through heaven's gates, there is a welcome committee there going, thank you for giving to the Lord. That while you're there and others come in, they say, thank you, I'm here because of your ministry. And yet you've got those on the outside who say, no, uh, I'm going to give to myself and make sure I use Modern wealth to make sure I'm happy. Then we see this rich man in Lazarus. Rich man's not named. Lazarus is. Lazarus is not the same Lazarus of John chapter 11, whom Jesus raised after four days of being dead. It's just a man named Lazarus. He was very poor. 
And the rich man, he represents all those Pharisees who think that they're great. They had no mercy upon those who needed mercy. And yet it's the poor man, the one that the dregs of society that are being held in the arms of Abraham, that are with Jesus in eternity. The rich guy that thought he had all the blessings of God is suffering in Hades, as the the story goes in, in chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And so we see here, it's the lost, it's the needy that Jesus came to seek and to save. The rest just represent those who, although they too are wretchedly in need, they just don't acknowledge it. They won't admit it. They will do what most people do today. I'm a pretty good person. Folks, please don't do that. Don't ever pat yourself on the back, either verbally or in your mind. Don't ever sit back and say, mm, I think I'm saved. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I wouldn't do what that person did. I watched the news yesterday, and they did that, and I would never do that. And if a squirrel runs out in front of me, I slow down. I don't speed up. I don't want to hurt the little guy. People actually say those things. There was a mouse outside my, uh, they, they mowed the yard next door to ours. And that, all the field mice, they didn't know where to go. So they decided to run up to the back of my office. I pulled up yesterday, and there's one of them, and there was another one later, and I beat it to death. I was trying to get in my office. I figured, better him than me. Did I feel bad about it? A little. <laughs> but I thought, it was a picture, I felt like, of, of God standing over people. That mouse didn't deserve, in my mind, to live. I know that sounds sadistic. I don't mean to be, be that way. It was sinful. It was beneath my glory. I didn't want it in the building. I could just imagine if it got in here and ran up there. Someone would scream bloody murder in the middle of a worship service. I had to put that to an end. But I found myself, I was the judge of this little animal. I judged it. It was done. It was over. The other one got away, but it won't be for long. I'll find it. I thought, that's a picture of us. Just by virtue of being a rat, it deserves to die. Same, you know, if you, if you like rats, well, then put snakes in that place. Or spiders, whatever it is, it deserves to die. It has no real right to live, not when I'm around. And I beat it. And I thought, that, that's a sinner. That's me without Christ. And what we'll see here in this parable, actually it's not a parable at all, it's a real story, of these ten lepers. Jesus has factored this into the context. It's not just people that some, one says thanks and the other ones don't. It fits in the context of chapters 15 and 16 in the early part of 17 where Jesus speaks of stumbling blocks. Don't be a stumbling block, 17.1. Make sure that you cause no one to sin. There will always be people that cause him to sin. Don't you be one of them. And if someone sins against you, forgive them. How many times? Over and over. Endlessly. No matter what they did, how many times they've done it. If they ask for forgiveness, you forgive them. It's what he says there. The apostles say, well, Lord, if that's the case, increase our faith. We need help. Increase our faith there in verse 5. Increase our faith, not our love, not our patience, not our tolerance. We need greater faith to be able to forgive people. And then Jesus gives this this, uh, this story here. He says, if, if you have enough faith, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, and you can put it right there between my two fingers, a little mustard seed, a little tiny little seed, like a BB. If you have faith that big, you can tell this great deep-rooted tree, like a live oak tree uses a mulberry tree, you could command that tree, uprooted, be thrown into the ocean, and it would happen. Now, it's a figure of speech. 
But it means a little bit of faith goes a long way. And so that bleeds into these people that come to Jesus. They have a little bit of faith. Verse 11, while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Now, let me put this in context for those of you who like this. Um, I think it's interesting. It's while Jesus is going, back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus began his final journey to Jerusalem. The final journey to Jerusalem will, be, will occur on the Passover, which happens in the spring, to commemorate the, the exodus from Egypt, where the, the, the death angel flew over and passed over all those who had the blood of the Lamb on his doorposts. It's going to commemorate it. The only way we know that Jesus served three years on the earth is from John's gospel. John speaks of three different Passovers, and since they happen annually, we know it was at least three years of ministry. We don't get that from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics. We don't know how long his ministry was there. But since we see three Passovers, we know it's at least three years in John's gospel. So I would tell you, if you want to go over to John with me, just, uh, you're just one gospel over to the right. Go over to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7 and 8, we see Jesus has come to Jerusalem. Um, he is not at the Passover yet, not at his final Passover, but in John chapter 7, he is at his final Feast of Tabernacles, which occurs in the autumn, the fall. Chapter 7 and 8, he's at that feast. In chapters 9 and 10, he's at the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, Feast of Hanukkah, it's called today. So he is there in 9 and 10, uh, he is, uh, so he's in December roundabout of uh, the year right before, just a couple months before he dies. When he gets to chapter 11, when he gets to chapter 11 in John's gospel, J Jesus has left and he's gone to Bethany, which is a little town about two miles, mile and a half, two miles from Jerusalem. And he's settled in a town called Ephraim. Chapter 11, verse 54 or 56. 50... Yeah, 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. But he went away from there to the country near in the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. So he's healed. He's come to Bethany. He's raised Lazarus from the dead after four days. The Jews, instead of believing him, are now out to kill him more than ever, which is strange, isn't it? He raised a man who was obviously dead for four days in the tomb. He raises him. You'd think that the whole of Israel would say, that's definitely the Messiah. No, let's kill him and get Lazarus. That's what they wanted too, because he's evidence that Jesus does heal the dead, raise the dead. So where we are, when you get to Luke chapter 17, verse 11, um, when it says while he was on his way to Jerusalem, this is where he is. He's in John 11 in that context. He's, he's enjoyed his last Feast of Tabernacles, the fall before, the Feast of Dedication, the December before, probably in February of, or <clears throat> early March here, where he is in verse 11, he's passing between Samaria and Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. As he entered a village, ten leprous men stood at a distance and met him. Lepers couldn't come anywhere near the general populace. They were commanded to stay outside of town, they were unclean. Uh, I would read Leviticus 13 and 14 to you, but not only is it disgusting to read, it's, uh, it takes a long time. But the context of, of this is Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. Let me read to you a few things and gross you out really good about leprosy, because it is a picture of sin. And these men are picturing it. So when I call you a wretched sinner and put myself in the category I want you to always think of a leper, just in maybe whatever you can remember of what I say about leprosy today. This is what one doctor says. 
leprosy. In the Bible, by the way, the word behind leprosy is the word scaly, scaly. Uh, the word scale, if there's a scale on the skin, which you would do in the Old Testament, if you had something on your skin, it could be psoriasis, could be eczema. You had to take it to the health inspector who was the priest. The priest would inspect it and say, oh, that's eczema. You're fine. Uh, or actually you would go off, you would separate yourself from seven day, for seven days, you'd come back and he'd look at it and say, oh, you're good to go, go back and, and uh, you'll be fine. You can join your family and be with the, the Israelites again. If it was still bad, you'd go away for another seven days. If you came back and it was infected, the priest would say, you're banished from society. You stay away because your uncleanness will make others unclean. Once you were healed from it, you go and you would offer a sacrifice. You would take eight more days and you would rejoin society. Um, most of the, the diseases that were, that were called leprosy, it was, they were large Order of those diseases, it's not what we call leprosy today, but leprosy today, called Hansen's disease, would be the leprosy of the Bible that was really bad. It's what these men would have had. This is what one doctor says about it. He says this, it, meaning leprosy, generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin in such spots loses its original color. We see that from the Bible, a piece of skin goes white. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingers drop off or are absorbed. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can see the person in this pitiable condition as a leper. By a touch of the finger, one can also feel it. One can even smell it. For the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacks the larynx, the leper's voice acquires a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can now not only see, feel, and smell the leper, you can also hear his rasping voice. And if you stay away from him from some, for some time, you can even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth. Probably do. I say if you stay with him for some time, he says, you can taste the foul smell of his body in your mouth. Disgusting, isn't it? Now, I'm just giving you the, the G-rated version here, or the PG-rated version. I started looking at this and thinking about it, read a little bit more on it. Because we, we, we encountered a leper in, in Luke chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, who actually approached Jesus. And Jesus touched him, which is to say Jesus wasn't offended by it. He wasn't supposed to be near people, but Jesus, he approached Jesus. Jesus touched him. He said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what did Jesus say? I'm willing. I love that, don't you? I am willing. It's not that Jesus said, mm, I don't think so. I am willing. And he did. I put in my notes, it's like sin. Modern leprosy, Hansen's disease, discovered by G.H.A. Hansen in 1873, uh, who was a Norwegian, I believe a Norwegian scientist. He speaks of it like this. He says, the deformities lepers suffer are the result of the victim being unable to feel pain since leprosy attacks the nerves. So lepers typically lose their fingers, their digits, their toes, their arms because they don't feel anything. You can put, they can put their hand on a fire and not feel it. One man was talking about, he was trying to, to, uh, to maneuver a nut onto a bolt and he couldn't do it. And this one young boy took it and said, I'll do it. And he did it. And when he twisted it, he got it all the way on. It was incredible strength and he was bleeding. He had leprosy. He never felt it. 
You know, usually we stop trying to turn that, that nut because it hurts our skin too bad. Others will turn it and do such things, it will finally, their fingers pop off, fall off. The disease isn't doing it, per se. It's actually the nerve endings when you don't feel pain. You burn your hand and you don't feel it. You burn your toes and you don't feel it. And so I looked at this and I thought, that's what sin does. It continually numbs us. As we continue in sin, we stop feeling it. The numbness of a leper's limb, in a leper's limbs allow him to experience no pain to the point where he can put his hand into a fire or smash his finger with a hammer and yet feel nothing. And I put there, no conscience. They feel nothing. They have no conscience. They've sinned so often, so many times, the leprosy of our souls is we feel nothing anymore. We don't even think about it. With traumatized extremities, hands, feet, and, and I put there in my own parentheses, destroyed lives. With a destroyed life, living in sin, lepers suffer infections, their limbs fall off, and the stench of their bodies can overwhelm them. Jesus, or God Almighty, when he put Adam in the garden, he said, if you take of this tree, dying you shall die. Dying you shall die. You will begin to die, and it will find its ultimate climax in your ultimate death. Dying you shall die. That's what leprosy is. That's what sin is. You get it and you begin to die. And you shall die. We all will. Why will we die? Why does everyone die? It's easy, class, isn't it? Because the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we all die. So lepers suffer infections. Limbs fall off. A stench of their bodies overwhelms them. Sin affects our entire being. It makes us loathsome to God and offensive to others. It infects our entire existence. I'm reading what this doctor said. Separating us from God and our loved ones. If it is not dealt with, it will overwhelm and kill us. Sinners who truly see their state as desperate and foul will come only to Jesus to be healed. And those who do will always go away clean and cured. So when you see lepers coming to Jesus, in the context of what Jesus has been talking about, knowing of all the things that God can put in His Word, and this is one of them, in fact this is unique to Luke's Gospel, think about it more in terms of this is not just teaching us to be thankful. There's something much deeper here. We see these scaly lepers, humble people, demanding no honor like the Pharisees, Lepers living with each other, they can only live with each other because they're separated from society. Imagine, you've been kicked out, you can no longer be with your, your spouse, your children. You can no longer see your parents. You are separated from society and there, is no, there are no visiting hours. You're too embarrassed to be seen. You're foul, you're going to spread what you have to them. This is what sin does, but this is the picture in this disease of leprosy. So these ten men are walking along while Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. He's still aware of and doing ministry, as you and I are, as we go about our own ministry. He entered a village. Ten leprous men stood at a distance. In fact, they had to stand at a difference. Lepers, when they encroached upon a population, had to say this over and over. They had to yell it out with their raspy, infected voices, Unclean! Unclean! as they approached any people. To warn, there's an unclean person approaching. How about that? How would you like to have to do that? 
I'll tell you, when I was in seminary, I, uh, I wrote one of the papers I wrote. I wrote it in haste. It was a two-week class. I was in a hurry. I was putting together uh, some sermons and Bible studies I had done together, and I needed to bulk up the paper uh, to get an A. When you contract for an A at Dallas Seminary, it has to be over 20 pages long. Uh, my paper was about 14, and so I bulked it up, and I was in a hurry, and I did not cite my work. I didn't mean to not cite my work, but that was my word against the professor. And so um, I got tagged for plagiarism. I almost got kicked out of school for it. And I pleaded with the professor. I said, look, give me the, the bad grade, but, but don't accuse me of it. I didn't, you can cheat by accident. You can cheat by design. He said, well, I looked it up and said, you copied this straight from such and such and so and so book. Yes, I did. You're right. I meant to cite it. My Bible software was putting endnotes on it. I would remove the endnote and make it into a footnote, which is what... They required. I didn't do it. I was in a hurry. My wife was in France. My two children were being watched by my, my parents in Conroe, and I needed to get there. My dad called and said, are you coming to get your kids or not? So I remember that. Got to get there, and I, and I was missing a day, blah, blah, blah. So it was just shoddy work, and I was quick about it, and I told my professor that. He said, I'm sorry, I don't believe you. Really? I mean, it was so humiliating. And, and I was told to go to the dean of students, who at the time was a, a guy named Bill Bryan, whom I loved, and I went to Dr. Bryan's office, and Dr. Bryan, he leveled against me. He, he, was, he was rude. He didn't like it. I went to Denton Bible Church. He said, oh, you Denton Bible people, you're Tommy Nelsonites. No, I'm not, because I, hadn't, I had, hadn't gone to all my days at chapel. If you don't go to chapel, you get in trouble at Dallas Seminary. You get two misses, I miss three. You Denton Bible Church people, you think you can miss any time. I'm going, uh, no, I... <sighs> sent me to the academic dean, who at the time was the number one, number two guy to Chuck Swindoll. And uh, so I went to him, and I thought I was going to get kicked out of school that day. Uh, Mark, uh, uh, gosh, I can't even remember his name. Mark, um, former president, Dallas Seminary. I go and I sit with him, and he said, uh, Lance, okay. He said, we've all plagiarized. I said, but I didn't do it on purpose. He goes, we've all plagiarized without doing it on purpose. You'll be all right. But what I had to do next semester was take a piece of paper to every professor and say, I have been tagged for plagiarism, watch out for me. Humiliating. Humiliating. When I graduated, I walked across the stage and Bill Bryan gave me my diploma and I just looked at him in the eye. I was so mad. When I ran into him at a funeral later on, I said, do you remember me? He said, yes, Lance. I should have shown you grace. Yeah, but you didn't. (laughs) The point I'm trying to make is a humiliating. If you've ever been humiliated... Can you imagine being so unclean, being so foul-smelling that you are expelled from society and someone comes along, you don't have to give them a piece of paper that says, hey, I once cheated on a paper. I reek the very sight of me too close to me and you will taste me. This is what lepers went through. This is what we, understanding sin as it is, must understand about ourselves before we can truly appreciate How clean Jesus has truly made us. I hope you never look at lepers the same way. I think that's why they're here. They stood at a distance. Probably had yelled to the crowd, unclean, unclean. Verse 13, they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Imagine ten lepers raising their voices with their raspy. You ever tried to to say something loud when you're you're sick? You're, You're your voice box isn't working. This is them. They're trying to get Jesus' attention. Jesus, Jesus. Doing what they can as best they can to get his attention. 
Wherever Jesus' attention was, they probably looked over at him, probably looking at him this some distance. They had to remain at least 150 feet away in the rabbinic law. And they call out to him and they say, Master, Master. They knew his name, Jesus. This word master is a very rare word. It's only used in Luke's gospel. And the only ones who ever use this word for Jesus are the disciples, except for this time. It references one who is leader of a pack. One who is a recognized, not teacher per se, but a leader. One in charge. They recognize. They know his name. They recognize him as being in charge. They use the same Word that Peter uses, that the disciples use. They know who he is. And Jesus, having healed most of Israel up to this time, there's no sick people in Israel, they're wanting a piece of that action. Jesus, Master, Great One, have mercy on us. The same thing that Lazarus did not get from the rich man every day. Lazarus probably would have been saying the same thing in chapter 16, verses 19 to 30. Asking, have mercy on me, rich guy. I would, I would gladly eat the crumbs that fall from your table. Can you just have some mercy on me, please? These guys come to Jesus. Jesus, have mercy on us. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you saw your condition as so horrible that you looked at Jesus and you said, Jesus, you just have mercy on me? Sadly, even Christians today think of themselves as so high, you're beyond that prayer request. Every day, Pray that prayer. May it be the first thing you say. Jesus, have mercy on me. I'm still that wretched sinner. We all know it, Lord. You and me both know I'm still a a wicked, foul-smelling leper. I've been declared righteous by you through faith in Jesus, but I'm not righteous. You know it and I know it. And anyone who knows me knows it. Have mercy on me. So at the very least, these men know their condition. Have mercy on us. When Jesus saw them, verse 14... He said to them, notice what he doesn't say. What he does say is, go and show yourselves to the priests. Sounds kind of strange. Go show yourselves to the priests. Well, we can't go anywhere near anyone, Lord. The implication is, in fact, when you look at Leviticus 13 and 14, when you have leprosy, you are to visit the priest. When you think you're healed, or if you think you have leprosy, the priest is the health inspector. I mean, he really is. He's the doctor. He inspects, and he determines whether you're clean or unclean. So to go visit the priest, if you are the provision in Leviticus 13 and 14, is if you are over your leprosy, go to the priest, offer the sacrifices, and he will declare you clean, and eight days later you can rejoin society. So when he tells them, go and visit the priest, mind you, these may be people who have no more toes. Have you ever tried to walk without your toes? Well, that'd be impossible unless you didn't have them. My understanding is that you can't even stand up without your big toes. You'll fall over without your big toe. That, that, that big toe provides you balance. Imagine losing your pinky toe. That little, does that have any point at all? But your toes, think about it when you stand up. Man, that's, I'm moving around up here, man. I've got all kinds of coordination. That's as, that's as charismatic as it gets here, folks. I've got moves never seen before, really. Toes. So he's telling them, go, go to the nearest priest. Well, they're outside of society, so they're nowhere near a walled village. They're cast out. So you're telling me, God, Jesus, you're telling me we need to walk. I have stumps. But that's what he's telling them. Go. Show yourself to the priest. He could have said, healed. He could have, but he didn't. 
Go show yourselves to the priest because that's what you're supposed to do when you're a cleansed leper. You're never healed as a leper. You're cleansed because it makes you unclean. But that's what he tells him. Go and show yourselves to the priest. My guess is that because no ten people think alike, there was probably a discussion among them. I'll add to the Bible. Hope it's not heretical. One may have said that could probably walk okay, maybe wasn't as advanced in his disease as the others were. Okay, let's go. Yeah, but Bob, I, I got I'm stumps over here, man. I can't move around. It's going to take me two days to get a mile away. Y'all are going to have to carry me, and in doing so, my arm may come off, quite literally. But okay, no, nah, I'm not going anywhere. I don't believe the guy. If he can heal, he healed the leper in chapter 5 real quick. Why didn't he heal us right here? What's the deal? You remember when, when uh, Elijah told, it's in 2 Kings 5, 2 Kings 5, chapter 5 I think it is. He told Naaman the leper, who was a, who was a great general for the uh, uh, Syrian army. He had come to Israel and Elijah said, go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman said, filthy river, I'm not doing that. I thought I was going to come and get healed and I was going to be fine and blah, blah, blah. So he goes away in disgust. I'm not going to do that. And someone says, look, what can it hurt? Just try it. So he does. Bathes seven times in the Jordan. And guess what happened? Comes out clean. He gives glory to God. So there's a process that God has sometimes. And the reason I bring that up and use that passage is that when God tells us, we come to him and we say, Lord, give me mercy. We want mercy. And we don't get it right away. Too often, right? Lord, I want this now. You gave these people in the Bible that right then and there, why don't I get it right now? Do you even hear me? And God's answer is oftentimes, go do something. Go on about your business. I've prayed for wisdom on many occasions. And I want to get it like Solomon got it, overnight apparently. Give it to me overnight. But God's answer has been, no, I'm going to let you go through life and gain wisdom, fall on your face many times, get up, learn all the problems you have, and you will learn wisdom along the way. How many of you have... The same boat as me. How many of you are in your 70s now, and, and you know you're wiser now than you were when you were 50, and certainly when you were 20, but you know you haven't quite arrived. If you've got a spouse, you've got a spouse to remind you of that truth. So this is not a text that just says, okay, Jesus heals whatever, whenever he can, but he gives them, you guys go see the priest, and note what happens Uh, Middle verse 14, and as they were going, they were cleansed. As they were going, as we go, God gave them something to trust in. Look, he doesn't say, I'm going to heal you if you go. Just go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, as we go about our lives, we gain. In fact, if you're anything like me, the things I've prayed to God for to give me, to grant me that I think we need right now, that we or that I need. He delays that until as I go, I look back and I say, uh, I know why you said no. It wasn't a good prayer. It was selfish. It was according to my will. Even if I'm praying for the salvation of another person. Even if I'm praying for the salvation of another person. You think, well, that's a good prayer to pray. God will answer all those. No, he won't. Well, he does answer all of them, yes or no. Yes or no. He, God likes to say no. Many knows. And the reason why he likes to say no, I shouldn't say likes to, or does so often, is because our prayer requests are so unbiblical. They're so outside of his will. 
We pray for healing. Give us healing. Well, have you ever thought maybe God made you sick to prove something to you and maybe someone around you while you're sick? Have you ever thought that God took someone you loved from you, not to hurt you, just to hurt you, but to mold and make you? And that your actions and how you grow through that might benefit and bless someone else along the way? I'm amazed when the difficult things happen to people in life, they call the church so quick. Put me on the prayer list. For what? Someone I know is sick. What do you want me to pray? That they'll be well. I'm not doing that. I, I'm, I won't do it. I want you all to know, if you pray and ask me for ask someone to make them well, I'm not doing it. God didn't allow them to get sick so somebody could just pray and make them well. What, devil's making them sick? God makes them well? Boom, boom, count, point, counterpoint? God's will is unfolding. If somebody is sick and needs prayer in your life, you pray for them. The prayer of a righteous man or woman is what? Very powerful, effective. Leave those requests to you and test your faith. For us to pray for people we don't know, it's not that we won't, but what do you want us to pray? Your faith needs to be strengthened in the midst of these trials. As God tells them, go to the priests. Someone in that group might have said, you know what? Maybe by the time we get there, we're going to be healed because we can't get to the priest unless we're healed. Maybe that's why they started traveling. And as they went, they were healed, all 10 of them. They were cleansed. Verse 15, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, and I just think about that along the way. It's not like they're carrying mirrors. When they're walking along, I'm going to look at my face and I'm going to see as far as I go, wow, look at me, I'm getting better looking every day. Look at this. They don't have mirrors. They're covering themselves. They have to. They have to cover their face. You don't want to be seen. You get a blemish on your face in our day and age, we don't want to be seen. Some people won't even come to church if they get a little blemish over here. I have to. It's just my job. I get them. It's the way it is. So you got to see blemishes and all. You go home and you go, oh, Lance had a nice blemish on his face today, didn't he? It's just the way it goes. But imagine that scene as they're walking. Hey, Jim Bob, move. Pull your face. I see your mouth. Your teeth are there. Your nose. You... Hey, Bobby. Look at this. And, and all of a sudden, these guys are dropping their rags and they see a, a, once was a stump, a foul smell, a face that looks like a lion with furrowed brows and lesions on them. Now have baby, baby skin. A hand they can do this with. Do that with your hand and just say, thank you, God. These two machines connected to my wrists. What a blessing. My big toes. You ever thank God for your big toes? Do it. Because if you didn't have them, that would be the number one prayer on your list, don't you think? Lord, if you just help me grow my big toes back. <laughs> that would be a miracle, wouldn't it? Show me someone who lost a big toe and got a new big toe, that's a miracle. I can only imagine the scene. I get, I get choked up thinking about what an incredible scene that would have been. Ten men who were so foul, who are now completely clean. Have their limbs back. Everything looks good. They pulled their head, whatever's covering their head, their filthy garments. They probably, hey, let's go down. Let's, let's take a swim. Found the nearest body of water. Jump in. What a day that was. No doubt the ones that had been um, alienated from their families are going, I'm going to, I can't wait to see my wife. I can't wait to see my children. I can't wait to hug my mom. And nine of them did that. Nine of them did. They, they may or may not have made their way back to that priest. But note this, verse 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. He turned back. We don't know how far they had gone. 
Apparently they had gone far enough away from Jesus to where the trek back meant that it would take some time to go back. I mean, if they were just that far away, 150 feet away, and they took one step and they were cleansed, well, that'd be an easy trip. Hey, Jesus, can we approach? But they had apparently gone some distance away before they were healed at a leper's pace. But one, just one. Note that glorifying God with a loud voice. Folks, some of you in this room cannot sing. Some of you think you can, but you really can't. People all around you can hear you, and the beauty of it is that you don't care. Some of you are singing so that people will hear you because you think you're good and you're not. And if Simon Cowell was here, he would go, stop. Keep singing. Let it flow out. It doesn't matter if you can carry a tune in a bucket. Just sing. Why? Because you can. Because you can. And if somebody gives it one of these while you're standing behind them and you're singing and they kind of give it one of these, sing even louder. Lean forward and get in their ear. (laughs) Because you can. Because it's worship. Who cares? We are not here to impress each other. This is a worship service. God has healed us in Christ. I don't even care if it's not singing. Yell it. Do it. Because you can. This man, perhaps for the first time in years, hears his own voice and is glorifying with a loud voice, phonas megalos in Greek. You know where we, where we get that today? You know what, what instrument we call that today, that Greek word? Megaphone. With a phonas megalos, with a mega voice. He broke out in some kind of praise, glorifying God, having turned back. When he gets to Jesus, whom he knows is God, he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And note this, and he was a Samaritan. Those hated counterparts to the Jews. The only reason this Samaritan was traveling with those nine Jews, who were also lepers, was because they were all unclean. They had the same problem, and so they overlooked the fact that he was a Samaritan. But the only one, you would expect those Jews to come back, but no, it was a Samaritan. He's falling on his face at Jesus' feet. Imagine that. His new, discovered, beautiful face on his face, thanking Jesus. I can only imagine what he's saying. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. He called him Master earlier. Thank you, Master. Thank you so much. What would you say if you were healed from such a disease? While the others are going back, no doubt they're thankful too, but not thankful enough to come back. This man shows that he knows. He turns back. He's glorifying God. He's using his voice. He's using his life, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. He's that one lost sheep. He's that one lost coin. He's that prodigal son. He is a Samaritan. He's hated. He's separated from the Jewish people whom God's covenants are with. Jesus answered, by, here, by the way, I think in verse 17 we see Jesus in his humanity. Jesus in his humanity, God in flesh, gave up, surrendered his rights to his godhood. Jesus actually surrendered um, what he knew, his omniscience, put it at the Father's feet. Philippians 2, verses 5, 6, and 7 says that he did not consider his own godhood to be something, something to be grasped. He emptied himself of that. And so I think here, Jesus fully expected all ten of them to come back in his humanity. He answered in verse 17, 
Were not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? By the way, the, Greeks, the Greek uh, text here is the word uh, where is emphasized. It's at the end of the text. And it's Jesus saying, and they are where? The other nine, uh, the ten, were they cleansed? But the other nine, they're where? Looking around, I only see the Samaritan. Where's the others? Genuine surprise in the Son of God. The Son of God surprised that he just healed ten people, nine of which were Jewish, one's a Samaritan, and it's the Samaritan that came back. Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, verse 19, stand up, because he's on his face. He's at the feet of Jesus, stand up. Jesus doesn't make him stand down there and grovel. It's not what Jesus is wanting us to do. Sit down and grovel and worship at my feet and maybe then I'll give it. No, this man has been compelled because of what he's been given. I think Jesus should tell us all when we get into his prayer, stand up. I love that song by Mercy Me, as you probably do too. I can only imagine. And he imagines, will I stand? Will I fall down at your feet? What will I do? Will I dance? It's a great question. It's a beautiful song. Love that song. I think we'll probably be at Jesus' feet. And then I think he'll say, hey, why don't you stand up and dance? But I can't dance. We might say that. There needs to be a sequel to that song. Answering the questions when Jesus said, get on up, I'll give you, you dance. I don't care if you can dance or not. My dad kicked me off the dance floor one night at my senior party because he was one of the, the, whatever, watchers. He was there to make sure no one who could, anyone who couldn't dance was off that floor. <laughs> I don't know how to dance. I have no rhythm whatsoever. And I was out there lifting weights, giving it the, you know, doing this move. <laughs> Curls, you know. That's all I can do. I live right here. As Hitch says, right here. That's where I, go. I don't bite my bottom lip either. Anyway, Dad's out there. I was doing, I was doing leg lifts out there. And he said, get, you look like an idiot. Get off the floor. I said, Dad, everyone out here in my senior class is drunk out of their mind, and you're mad that I can't dance? I don't think God is going to care because when we're out there jumping around like fools, we're doing it because God has saved us. Stand up. Go. And by the way, this, <laughs> this miracle is not even embellished. It's just another day in the life of God. And then clouds covered the sun and there was a great roar of thunder in the background. And a sound of the angels began to sing and those ten lepers were healed. No, as they went, they were healed. Boom. It's the way it works. Stand up. Go. Your faith has made you well. By the way, the New American Standard Bible, which I love, I think is the, the best English version in the 1995 edition, did not translate this well. Because it says literally your faith has saved you. It has saved you. It made the others well. In fact, he could have said back in verse 14, it says as they were going, they were cleansed. Verse 19 says, doesn't say your faith has cleansed you. That's a different Greek word. He doesn't say in verse 15, says now one of them, uh, when he saw that he had been healed, he doesn't use that word at the end in verse 19. Two different Greek words in 14 and 15. The third Greek word there he uses there in verse 19 is you weren't healed or cleansed. You have been saved. You see, the other nine, they got from Jesus all they wanted. They got healed. And that's what some people do. They get from Jesus what they want. 
Jesus, help me out here. Give me this. Grant me that. I'll be on my way. I won't bother you. Some people even pray, Lord, I'll ask one more prayer request, and then I won't bother you again. No, keep bothering God. He's not like a person. Keep bothering every day, all the time. Keep offering up your requests. You can never tire God out. If you say, I've only got one more request. It's my last one. If you give me this, I won't give anything else. You don't know Christ at all. The other nine got what they wanted from God. And they left. This guy wanted to say thank you. How many of your children came out of the womb thankful? I I can tell you zero. You see, being grateful is not inherent to our sinful nature. And if you as parents don't teach your kids to say thank you, they never will. If you don't teach them about Jesus, what he did, and that we are to be thankful, they never will thank him. When I was, I must have been five, four, maybe five. I don't remember anything beyond four or prior to four. I do remember my mom, I remember asking my mom, mom, am I five? I remember that question, which means I was four, you know, because five comes after four. And she said, no, your birthday is until blah, blah, blah. But they told me one day, apparently mom and dad conspired that they said, look, we're going to really come down on this kid. My, my sister was just like one at the time, so she, I was apparently the problem in the family. And I remember sitting at the, at the kitchen table where we lived when I was a child, and dad said, you will not leave this table tonight unless you say, may I be excused or I enjoyed the meal. Now, I, I look back, I had no idea what either one of those phrases meant. Sp- certainly didn't know what maybe I be excused meant. I, I know that. So I selected I enjoyed it because I thought it meant both of them meant I can get off the dinner off the table and I, it was my rebellion I wasn't going to say it and my dad made me I opted over the course of however long it took me for I enjoyed it I enjoyed it and once I said I enjoyed it I could get down from the table uh, I didn't enjoy it um, as a kid but mom and dad were teaching me you say thank you my dad said your mother works to, to make this meal, you will say thank you or you will not get down. And this meal that's left on your plate, you'll eat that tomorrow morning for breakfast. No lucky charms for you. Old fish that you didn't eat. I had to learn to say thank you. And as I grew, I, I, I grew to be a thankful person. I learned that my mom did work hard to make our meals. I learned that my dad worked hard to provide a living. I learned to say thank you. Because it was not going to be natural. And if you've ever met an unthankful person, you know it. And you remember it, whether you want to or not. You gave them something and they didn't say thank you. There was no thank you card. In our day and age, the generation that's here, those things are, are unfortunately outdated now. And they shouldn't be. Gratefulness is a wonderful quality. It's godlike. This man is the one that showed it. And note, the others were, 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 were cleansed, but this guy was saved. He understood who Jesus was, what he did, and he returned to acknowledge it. They had faith to be cleansed. He had faith to be saved. You see, lots of people have faith that Jesus is a great prophet. Jesus did this, he did that. Yeah, I believe it. Some even believe, I believe he died and rose again. I believe that. But that doesn't make them Christians. At the very least, at least from this passage, we see that what distinguishes those who know what Jesus did versus those who know him as Lord and God are the ones that say thank you to him. How often do you find yourself thanking him? Praising him? How much time do you spend thanking him in relation to how much time you spend petitioning him to give you what you want? 
How much time? Is it just a little fraction of a time? Oh, thanks, Lord. Now I've got a few more requests. What do we think of people like that? How much time do you spend thanking God? We usually reserve these for November sermons, you know, because it's Thanksgiving. But this is about Christianity. It's about knowing Christ. It's not about finding the things that can that get us down, that make us angry. That's easy to do. We, can, we don't have to look far for that. It's about looking. Unfortunately, we have to look for the things we're thankful for. Find them. You say, well, you don't know. I'm getting old, Lance. I'm in my 80s now. Everything hurts. I don't know that. I know what, what it means to hurt. But you older folks, you should be leading the way for us. When someone asks you older folks how you're doing, don't tell us how you feel. And I don't mean that callously. I don't. But all we younger people think is that when we get old, all we're going to do is gripe about how bad we feel. I mean that. Let me challenge you. Be our examples. You, if you're in your teens, your 20s, learn now. Say thank you. Find yourself glorifying God in spite of the fact that you're in pain. In spite of the fact that everything's not going your way. You play golf, you go fishing. Every time you play golf, you're going to, Lord, I'm just happy to be out here. I can swing a golf club. My back hurts, my neck hurts. It doesn't take me three holes before I get in horrible pain. But I'm outside. Fishing, throw it out there. Fish done it. Really, Lord, you can put a fish on the end of this line. I've said that. Not out loud. Barry's catching everything. Why am I not? And the answer always comes through, Lance, because I put the people I love the most through fish droughts. Let people like him catch him. He thinks I'm with him. But he does do that. He puts the people he loves through droughts, not just in fishing, in life. Thank him. It's godlike. It's not so much that one was thankful more than the others. I close with this thought, so, so remember it. It's not so much that some were not thankful and one was. It's as I heard Alistair Begg say when I listened to his sermon, he said, it's that one saw and the others didn't. One saw that Jesus was the Christ. One saw what he was, that he was the giver of all things. He saw his need, his desire, his true desire to say thank you, and the others didn't. So what distinguishes your, what you claim to be a Christian? Do you see your need? God doesn't need to be thanked. You need to thank him. I need to thank him. God doesn't need our money. We need to give. We give to God because it's our need. God doesn't need our thanks. We need to. Do you see that? If you're not in Christ, all you will do is gripe. If you are, may you leave here today on fire, remembering that cross, the man that died on that cross. There are many have died on crosses throughout the history of time. But the man that died on the cross was God taking on flesh. And he died on that cross to take the penalty of our sin. And when we see that, what else are you going to do? Fall at his feet, glorify God, take what voice you have or whatever it means you have and say thank you because you've been saved. Let's pray. Lord, we are all inherent lepers. The odor that we emit is foul we are in need we are born with a need for a savior you have graciously provided one for us yourself through our Lord Jesus Christ may we be reminded today 
of our sin, yes, but of our forgiveness that we have through faith in Him. May no one leave here and think for one moment that just because you died on the cross that they are saved. Don't let anyone leave here without realizing they must receive you and trust you to be saved. In our leprousness, Lord, we tend to think that you just love everybody all the time in spite of our foulness. But it's only through faith in Christ that we are saved. Remind us. Convict those here who are not of their sin and cleanse them. Have mercy on all of us, but especially of the unsaved. May we be as saved people an aroma. Some will hate us for our great smell. Others will be attracted to the smell we have of Jesus Christ and His salvation. May we shine that light and spread that aroma. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, my friends, go and spread that aroma to a dying world. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 